The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And on today's podcast, we have another special podcast swap. Both Ron and I were interviewed on the PM Point of View podcast, and that's what we will be sharing with you today. If you're not familiar, the Project Management Point of View podcast is a podcast series that gives you brief and insightful conversations with PM practitioners in a variety of disciplines. There's a host, Kendall and Mike, and they had a really wonderful conversation with us, and we thought that this podcast would be great to share with our listeners. So that's what we will be sharing on today's podcast, and we hope that you enjoy. Hello, hello, PMs. This is not our winner of discontent. This is December 2022, and it's very much our content time and happiness all around. We have an actually different type of approach to our PM point of view today. We are going to continue to elevate the conversation. Mike and I, how you doing, Mike? You there? Hey, Kendall. Good morning. Mike is here because we have two special guests who are coming to us from Cognolytica who are running a podcast, AI Today. So you get to hear this twice. Uh, you collect a PDU on our side, though. I guess there's a bonus for that. So we have with us today Ron Schmelzer and Kathleen Walsh of Cognolytica, partners both. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Ron, tell us about yourself real quick. And actually, let's start with where you're calling in from. Okay, great. Well, hey, thank you for having us on the PM Point of View podcast. You guys are fantastic. We love talking to other podcasters. We kind of know how the shtick goes. But I think most importantly, we have our communities and our community that we have spent for the last five years now, something like 300 plus episodes at AI Today podcast has been focused on artificial intelligence and that hot space. And of course, what's happening there with data and our perspective and our point of view is always on what's happening with AI today, because there's a lot of talk about the future. AI is so science fictioning. And of course, a lot of the past, because AI has been with us as long as computing over 70 plus years. But we're focused on the trials and tribulations of making AI work, some of the successes and a lot of the failures. And that's my perspective. So I'm Ron Schmelzer, managing partner and co-host, and of course, my partner, Kathleen, as well. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm Kathleen Mulch. I'm also a managing partner at Cognolytica and co-host of AI Today podcast. So as Ron mentioned, we've been running our podcast now since 2017, and we've never run out of things to say. We've wanted to focus it on AI today rather than, you know, AI of the future. Some podcasts are very forward thinking. What's interesting about AI, too, is that with other technologies, it can be very mundane. You know, a lot of people don't fear the cloud or fear mobile. But for AI, for some reason, it's very science fiction. People think crazy thoughts. Killer uh, robots. <laughs> exactly. I don't think Hollywood helps to get rid of any of those thoughts. They just make it worse. So a lot of people have maybe, you know, misconceptions of what AI is and what AI isn't. Because some of the stuff that AI is doing right now, and specifically machine learning, is very mundane, but incredibly useful. So that's what we wanted to highlight on AI today. You know, how it's being applied, how different organizations are doing it, how it's impacting your everyday life, maybe in ways that you don't know. Well, so we're not AI... We're not in the land of science fiction. We're in the land of science factual. So let's start with that. So that's the real reality that you guys have grounded us in. Tell us a little bit about Cognolytica, though, in its context of 
maybe less the sales pitch and more why AI, what do you engage with? And uh, I think I understand why you're doing it on the podcast, but tell me what it happens from a corporate perspective. Yeah, I mean, what we have always focused on with Cognitic has really been around education and training, mainly because there is still significant gap in understanding, not just, honestly, a lot of the artificial concepts, some of which are pretty hard to understand technically, but a lot of which, you know, they continue to evolve. I mean, we don't know how the brain works. Uh, we don't know what intelligence is. So therefore, doing artificial intelligence is one of those things where we're constantly trying to figure it out, sometimes getting closer, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Nobody really knows how close we are. So we really have always been focused on education. And for a while also, we really spent some time focusing on tracking the markets and sort of that traditional analyst style, what's happening with the vendor space. But what we heard is that it's very hard for our companies to even think about procurement or buying when they haven't quite figured out what their problem they're trying to solve. And of course, this brings us to a much more recent concern, although we've been focusing on this for the past few years, which is around methods and methodology. And I think AI people are learning very quickly that it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. I won't sing too much Louis Armstrong for you, but you know, you guys know the story, right? It's actually much more about project management than it is about technology. I don't know, Kathleen, you wanted to add to that. Yeah, you know, and I think that the more that we get involved in how these different organizations are doing it, also, we have a failure series that we have on our podcast, Common Reasons Why AI Projects Fail. And digging into that has been incredibly helpful for both our listeners and us as well, because a lot of people are failing and they shouldn't be failing. And what we found is that it really comes down to how you're running your projects and that they don't have a step-by-step -step process that they're following. They're doing it on the fly. They're not following anything at all. Different departments and groups within each organization are running things differently. And we're like, these are some fundamental challenges that many organizations have. So as Ron mentioned, that's why we're all about education. We want to share that with others and say, you're not alone and maybe take one step back. A lot of people also think their problems are unique to them. We've seen that a lot, especially in this AI space. And they go, well, my problem is different. My problem is unique. I'm like, not really. And maybe your topic area is specific. But if you take one step back and you say, all right, this is my problem. There's other similar problems. You can learn a lot. Hey, in well, fact, let me key on that, Kathleen, right away. Because you talked about methods, methodologies, following a process or no process. But I often also find that we follow a process mechanistically. Right. And we go through the motions and we check the checkbox from whatever the scrum guide told us to do when the problem we're trying to solve might not lend itself to that. Do you see that as well with AI? I, you must. Yeah, yes, but I was going to say, People aren't even really following processes like they're just doing it. AI projects are really all about data. They're data projects. You need to make sure that you have the data. You have access to the data. It's good, clean data. Maybe it needs to be labeled if you're doing supervised learning. And people are just jumping forward and they want to move forward with these projects. And they're not, you know, we uh, are advocates of the CPM AI methodology, the Cognitive Project Management for AI methodology. And phase one is business understanding. Are you solving a real problem? For some reason, when people talk about AI, they're like, we're just going to go ahead and do it. But <laughs> is AI even the right solution to your problem? Well, I'll go further and say that methods themselves are solutions. And if you start by saying, well, here's the method I use, you're saying, here's the solution I embrace. But we haven't yet talked about the problem. So same kind of pattern, right? 
it's really strange because when we do our failure series, these aren't like small failures from companies you may never heard of, like Jones Bank, you know, implemented some filing system you never heard of and that failed. Oh, boohoo. No, no, this is like Walmart. Watson, right? Watson, huge failure, billions and billions of dollars. They threw that whole healthcare thing out the window. That whole thing collapsed. Pretty much everything's happening with autonomous vehicles. You might have seen Embark, the semi-truck. They just completely shut down. But even like companies that are not like startups, they're established companies like Walmart had their inventory scanning shelf bot they spent millions of dollars on. And they're like, okay, that didn't work. Who came up with the idea of the inventory scanning robot? Phase one, business understanding. Tell me what the problem was. And you might think there's no way organizations like this make them stick. It's like, no, no, they are like- They're they're buying into, I don't know if it's like fear of missing out. I don't know if it's like getting onto the next, you know, hype cycle. There's a lot of reasons for it, but it, it's not exactly the same as other places where you might say, okay, jumping into a cloud project, perhaps too early or doing some mobile stuff that didn't work out. You can iterate your way to success, even with those failures. But for some of these, it's sort of like when they're out, they are like out. You just made me think of something. You said, you know, we don't, we this whole theme we're talking about to start our session today is, you know, really not knowing what we're doing and we're groping our way in the dark when we have a light switch, right? And so it's kind of like saying, if we're already starting out with a lack of intelligence, then artificial intelligence is almost an oxymoron, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think we've spent a lot of our time, especially in our education, when we started bringing in methodology and process into the whole conversation, what we realized is that it's not, intelligence is not the problem we're trying to solve because that's not really a problem. It's more like, what are you trying to accomplish if you have the ability to do things with a little bit of human cognition? And you think there's a lot of work on this, but there's the three aspects of what we mean by human cognition. It's perception, planning, and prediction, which is that understanding the world around you. So it's things like natural language processing, computer vision. There's a whole category of tasks there. Then there's basically planning, which has to do with things like predictive analytics and doing some routes. You might think of playing games, whatever the thing is, trying to figure out what the next thing is. And then there's uh, prediction, which is trying to guess what the next thing is going to happen. And so when you do that, you could say, okay, well, if we're trying to apply, honestly, what's called narrow forms of AI to some of those problems, then you could say, okay, instead of, for example, if we were back at Walmart, we'd be like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Oh, we need to scan our shelves. And the problem is stuff is misshelved all the time. And we're spending all this labor with people moving things around. And we don't really know the status of our inventory. We're like, okay, forget the robot for a second. Okay. You don't need the robot. What if you just had a push cart, right? With a little camera on it, right? And all it did was just tell you using basic computer vision, what the products were on the shelf, and you basically clicked a button that said, yes, okay, it's not autonomous. It doesn't navigate the floors by itself. You don't have to solve problems of it running into things. All those problems, let's not deal with those very hard, by the way, very classically hard problems to solve. Even autonomous vehicles can't figure that stuff out. And just focus on the problem you're trying to solve. Break this cognition problem down, right? This comes down to, again, thinking in terms of, it's a process. It's a method. Lean in here for a second, then. We've gone down this part of how do we project manage an AI project, right? The implementation of some sort of AI information. I'm going to want to shift that a little bit later for us. But for this right now, it's heartwarming for me to find out that even with this more modern tool set, you have all the same project management failures, problems, concerns, misconceptions that we do in the point of view from a project manager. So let's take it now as how many podcasts have we had on this? Essentially, Mike, all project management problems are know the business problem first and work to the value. 
all the rest of it is noise or stuff that's already understood or it's not standard enough to bother to use a standard process. It's not noise, but signal is just a, a very wrong signal. Wrong signals, right. So let's think about some of our project management aspects. Let's say you got your business problem. Mike, we last talked about the difference of understanding how to break down the project you were trying to implement versus develop it as a sequenced flow as a way of understanding the breakdown of the, of the uh, scope of the project. What do you guys observe in the implementation of AI tools? And why would it be any different? Perhaps maybe it's not. But what have you observed from your market look once people do have a business problem? What are you observing? So for us, the way that it starts is first we have business understanding and we say, make sure you're solving a problem. Okay, then make sure that you understand. We call AI machine learning also cognitive technology. Sometimes AI can, you know, turn people on or off depending. So is it a cognitive technology solution? If it is, then next is data understanding. Do you have the data that you need? If not, how are you going to get that data? Do you need to have access internally? Do you need to get this data externally somewhere? So let's start there. Then let's make sure that our data is good. Once it's good, then we can do things to it. And now we can move forward with actually building the model. And then we're going to test the model. And then we're going to actually use the model in the real world. Okay, I'm going to hold you right there. That's super chilling that it's as simple as that or as problematic as that. Because Mike, that just took me back 20 years. We used to talk about data cleansing. And it was like the big deal when we were merging databases back in the 90s that, you know, oh, the databases don't speak to each other and the data's wrong. Like, have we just gone back to the future or what's happened here? Yeah, you joke, right? Ron and I laugh about this all the time because sometimes a new technology, you know, a new way of doing things will come out and Ron's like, yeah, wasn't that called this like 10 years ago? Wasn't that called this 20 years ago? And we laugh about it because we're like, yeah, it is. It's just they spin it a new way. And now people get so excited. You're in this hype cycle again. You're like, oh, my goodness, this is something new. I'm going to invest in this. We're going to go crazy. We're going to like not think straight. It comes down to fundamental data problems. And I don't think that's something that's new. And I don't think, unfortunately, that's something that's going to really change anytime soon. The amount of data that we're creating on a daily basis is insane. Like we talk about being in the zettabyte era. I mean, first off, Like, actually, how big a zettabyte is, is crazy. It's a huge, it's a huge amount of data. Some companies like Google have a zettabyte of data. So it's not just now the world. It's like one company has that much data. To be managing that data, you know, depending on uh, if it's streaming data, how fast it's coming in, there's just a lot of challenges. This idea of big data, you know, and we have a lot of the Vs of big data. So we have velocity, veracity, volume, that's the size of it. And that's what's making this so difficult. So it's not, you know, data and databases, and that's the hard part. It's all this other data that we're creating. It's the pure scale and speed of it then. Okay. So let me dive in on that because that makes sense, of course. And we've all seen this phenomenon for decades now. And, you know, we all have had experiences either, you know, with cars getting smarter and helping us stay in the right lane and forget even self-driving yet. But autopilot software for pilots and airplanes has existed for a long time. And All this stuff's been around a while, but fundamentally, the more volume we have, don't we have a bigger management problem? Oh, absolutely. Isn't it like exponential? Like if if I double the amount of data, haven't I tripled the management challenge? Actually, it literally is exponential. There's these charts. I don't know if you've seen these uh, growth of data charts, both structured and unstructured data, structured data, of course, and databases. That's actually growing at a fairly linear rate, but like it's the unstructured stuff. Like every system we build, 
collects data. And the data systems we build, we put more data on top of those systems to do additional things like analytics and logging. So what happens is that every single time we pull this in, we just explode this like exponentially without limit. I mean, that's why people have said, the, I don't, we hate this analogy that data is the new oil. Like data is not the new oil because oil has got a limit. Data has got no limit. I mean, it's like literally, it's probably the only infinite resource that I can. And, and can, if we're making the, the management challenge exponentially <laughs> harder, that right. stands to reason that we're probably getting worse and worse at it. Yeah. And for those people who don't know, listeners, you know, unstructured data are things like documents and images and video and text and all that stuff. And Even we're Google searches, make- right? Yeah, searches, all that. And we're trying to make more of it because that's actually where a lot of the value that we have. It's not sitting in a database nice and pretty. Let me back up for a second, though, because that's a whole realm to go into. But just before we tip into it, does that change the project management concept? So that strikes me as the thing we are trying to implement may be fundamentally different than other things that have been implemented in the world because of the data streams. But is the project management any different with it? That's one of the things we spend some time talking about, trying to understand, which is, first of all, these things should have well-defined beginnings and ends, or however you want to define the end of a project, but these should be def- well-defined projects. And that's when people get sort of out of control, because when you try to bite off too much, especially with data, and there's, there's some very notable failures. I've mentioned some of them, but even some the smartest people in the world, the best AI researchers are just failing, You know, whether it's you know Andrew Ng who is one of the progenitors of this idea of deep learning. And they tried to basically do these medical imagery things with automatic scanning, and they just could not get it to work. Founder of Coursera as well, you know, Andrew Ng. Other people like Jan LeCun, who is uh, another major AI person, they've been pushing all this stuff out at Facebook and Meta. It's been failing. And of course, the biggest one now is Amazon might actually close their whole Alexa department because they never figured out how to turn that into a business, which is a whole other story. But that comes down to what are we trying to do here? You just said something that triggered, for me, something different that might make it. When we think of, I want to go back to your, your, um, your pathway to getting through an AI project, but we, we got business problem in the data question. But something that might be fundamentally different here is this. Mike and I have wrestled with people and discussing before, get your business problem, right? Because that's the goal. How do you know you're getting there? Mike talks a lot about being able to produce the portfolio of projects and get us to our outcomes. Each project has to have its own goal. And that's part of a portfolio that achieves business problems and get business returns or mission returns in the case of nonprofits in government space, right? We think of that, the image that you just gave me is we're always trying to get people and, and our, ourselves to think of what is the goal and stay on path and produce flow. What might be different here? When you touch a project that has infinitely, potentially, potentially infinitely expanding resources, i.e. the data, is not fundamentally constrained because project management is about constraints. So now instead of we need to have our constraints because time keeps moving and we're aiming at a goal, the goal is no longer, our business problem is no longer a goal, but the absolute constraint. Stop when you've solved this. Don't keep finding all the stuff you can do around this. It may be a different twist on the same problem, Mike, for us, that it's actually now more of a declaration of the endpoint than the target. The endpoint. So you're distinguishing endpoint from target as an endpoint is something that should be pursued. And sometimes we have the wrong target. Yeah, because what happens is, is in a project, we have to put energy in to get to something. We're building something. We're organizing people. We are communicating. We have meta information. We have politics. All the stuff we always talk about 
is energy input into a system that we keep the flywheel moving and we need to be focused on the target. We need to be focused on the business problem that has an outcome and produce these things. In this case, you're touching a topic that explodes in terms of what you could be addressing. So yes, we're putting in our project management energy, but the thing that we are building against itself, once you trigger it, can just keep flowing, can keep going, can become a terabyte to a petabyte to a zettabyte. I mean, it just starts exploding beyond you, right? So now we still need that. You, you told us before we need to start with a business problem. Mm-hmm. And so I'm now thinking of it as less like, I hope we can put enough energy to get to the business problem in time to no, that means you have to only build this and stop because there's something inherently expansive in dealing with an AI project. I mean, this goes back to some. Oh, that's interesting. So it's, yeah. so it's scope creep on steroids almost. Scope creep on steroids. This matters because one of the questions in fundamentally in, in economics, and it, I believe project management is a reflection of that, is we are dealing with scarcity. We anchored a non project, nonprofit program around that, right? That fundamentally project managers say, because you as a business problem are dealing in scarcity, we have to help you manage and stay on track. But what we're dealing with when you touch something in a deep data way, the way you are, we're no longer dealing with, there's one element that is no longer in scarcity. That's data. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and it and it can drain the, the resources right. of everything else. Right. It pulls everything um, down with this. it. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. the point, and a lot of times it does, right, mm-hmm. Kathleen? Right. So we always say think big, start small and iterate often. So think big, have the end goal in mind, but then start small because when you take on more than you can actually handle, you start to run into issues as well. We want these to be short iterative cycles here. What we found is that a lot of companies are spending 9, 12, 18 months to get a model out. That is more of a waterfall approach than it is, you know, an agile one. And that's not how you should be building your AI and data projects. So when you start small, we go, what is the smallest thing that you can do in this cycle so that you can get something done and then continue to iterate often? That's another problem that we've seen, that people are just taking on a lot more than they can handle. And then somebody in a previous, I think actually somewhere we read it, it was this term wagile, and we bring it up a lot because it's waterfall and agile combined. And that's what a lot of people are doing. They want to be agile, but they're not. And so they're running into these issues as well, where they're like, you know, you shouldn't be taking 18 months to get a model out. That's way too long. Let me throw a word in for the traditional PM waterfall crowd. I would say, you know, iterative, we know always works well when you're actually not quite sure what the end solution should be. And we know there's things we don't know and we need to experiment and learn as we go, right? But sometimes if you do it right and you have some very narrowly defined scope, a true minimum viable product that's very clear and right in front of you. The path to getting there is known. We can lay out the steps. We know the three work streams or whatever it is. Maybe you don't need to iterate more than once. Possible. This actually goes back to actually what Kendall, what you were saying about the potential for this explosive exponential rate of growth. I want to bring this into like a very specific case in point here, even for a very basic thing. Let's just say you're trying to do some image recognition thing or like some predictive analytics thing. And you're thinking, oh, it's a very well-defined scope. I'm just going to take pictures of something and categorize it. And you might think, well, I have a lot of data. I could possibly have like petabytes of data. So there's the temptation to basically say, okay, more is better. So I'm going to go with all that data and I'm going to use that to build the best model. The problem is you didn't take into account 
all the other stuff you got to do. It's not just the data. You have to clean the data. You have to label the data. You have to integrate the data. Oh, and by the way, the data is changing every five minutes. So what's happening is that you just, you, you thought, okay, I have a well-defined scope. I'm like, yeah, but you just bit off this big data problem. And now what's happening is that your project that you thought was going to be X amount of months, you're like, oh, we didn't realize we needed to do all this cleansing. We need to do this data labeling. I got to outsource this. I got to do this. And then it's like, you got to iterate. I got to build them all. It's like, yeah, you just killed your project. You just basically exploded your project. What you should have done was basically started with a more basic model, some more basic data, maybe not try to bite off all that sort of stuff. Don't try to build the Uber chatbot that can handle 25 questions. Handle one question. Don't Mike, use deep learning, that kind of thing. I want to link this to you, Mike, for a second. Help me out here. You've talked in your past with me about how traditional methods are schedule buffers, but agile's a scope buffer. Yep. So I was just reflecting on that, not with the deep knowledge that you have. When he just talked about this as explosive scope, I'm suddenly realizing if this were using an agile approach, this could be a way to never end. Uh, and that, of um, course, is the knock-on applying these a Scrum but, or Agile I mean, method. That, be, this could be a million minimally viable products after another. Well, really, any project using any method, if you don't have the end in mind and it's not clear, yeah. then it will go forever. Right? Uh, what's the old saying from, like, I think it's an Alice in Wonderland quote? If you don't know where you're going, then any, any road will get you there. It's an important for the listeners who are thinking about AI who don't have a lot of experience. Just think about autonomous vehicles. How long will it take for us to get a level five, truly autonomous vehicle? The answer is nobody knows. So the question is, are you willing to put in basically limitless amounts of money and time into this problem? And at what point do you either consider the problem solved or unsolvable? And there are AI researchers who say, we're 200 years out from autonomous vehicles. Just so I'm like, no, 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 we're five years out. Who's right? The answer is you don't know. So to your point, it's like, we could be a million iterative sprints away. We could be five, but the fact is nobody knows. So unless you are willing to basically just throw caution to the wind here, and the problem is that a lot of AI problems are like that, whether it's trying to make bots that can handle any conversation, whether you're trying to do <laughs> medical imaging, whether you're trying, I mean, there's so many classes of problems like that, that just might be like hard to rein in. And then if you do rein it in, it becomes overly trivial. And you're like, well, mm -hmm. I can do lane keeping. Like there's nothing wrong with lane keeping, but you don't need full autonomous vehicles to do lane keeping, right? And that might be good enough. So you have to tell people to stop, to your point, tell people to stop there. But the autonomous vehicle group doesn't want to stop there. Once people have played through the data, what are you dealing with? Where do you see the next step where people trip up, fail, uh, or are successful? So really, once we make sure we're understanding a business problem, we have our data, now we're going to actually build the model. We mm -hmm. need to make sure that we are putting it in an environment where it's going to be most useful. So what I mean by that is we've seen people have cameras out in the wilderness to count the number of salmon that are coming down a stream. Well, if you're going to be out in the wilderness, make sure that you're not going to need to be connected to the internet, right? Because you are not probably going to have any internet connection. Or if, you know, unlocking your phone with your face, make sure that you're not, you don't need to be connected to the internet. Because if I'm in airplane mode, for example, or I'm out on a hike and I don't have good reception and I'm not able to do that, people will get frustrated. So you need to make sure you're understanding where you're actually going to have your model in use. That's another problem that we see 
people aren't always thinking about that. And then they go and they put their model. It's called operationalize. And you're like, okay, it doesn't actually work as I thought. Another issue is budgeting. You need to make sure that you have budgeted for this project, not just till the end, but afterwards as well. Because what happens is that we have data drift, which leads to model drift, which means that over time, our model will not perform as well. Are we retraining this model? How often are we retraining this model? Who's in charge of that? These are all questions you need to be considering. Kathleen, make that a little more specific for us. What would it mean? What's a business example of how model drift happens? Okay, sure. So depending on how often you get different data, let's talk about sales data, for example. Mm -hmm. You're getting it in, it's performing one way, and you're like, okay, I've built this model so that it's going to help with answering a specific question or help with predicting inventory. And then suddenly something happens and it's a sudden change and your model is no longer performing as well as you thought it would for whatever reason. If you're not retraining that model, that which means giving it new data that it's never seen before, real world data, making sure it's continuing to understand what's going on, it's not going to perform as well because AI is not deterministic, which means it's going to have the same exact result every single time. It's probabilistic. And so with probabilistic systems, you're never going to have 100% accuracy. So you need to make sure that you're constantly evaluating it. What we found is that people will give an upfront cost to the project and say, you know, we've budgeted $5 million for this. The project, you're done, you've built your model, you've operationalized it, it's being used, and you're going to move on to the next project. And we say, no, you have to budget for maintenance of that. So that means you have to have a person involved, at least one, depending on how you set it up at your organization, maybe more than one. You're going to have continuous budget for this retraining. You're going to have to make sure that you have some sort of schedule of how often you're retraining it. Are we getting the difference between a project and product management here? I mean, is the project once you get the model built the first time? Is this a definition of when project ends? Everything Kathleen just described is a problem with project management and has been for a long time, right? This notion of we, we buy into what I believe is a weak definition of projects as temporary endeavors. The investment period is temporary. The payback period is the reason we do the investment period. So if we short circuit the payback period by walking away and not giving it the full squeeze to get as much juice as we can out of it, shame on us. Right. It is actually, it's kind of interesting. I mean, so much of what you're talking about just really gets me thinking here. By the way, the Kendall, when you were talking about we need this area of meta-learning for meta-project, that's actually one of the classically difficult problems of computer science, as you know, the P versus NP problem. I don't want to over-summarize it, but if you go to Wikipedia, does a good job, which is that there's this classical problem. It's called a major unsolved problem where can you figure out if a solution can be solved in computing time. And the answer is, we don't know if we could figure out if something can be solved in any sort of computable amount of time. That's a classically unsolved problem to first do some analysis to figure out if a problem is solvable in that way. If you could solve it, you, there may be a fielding medal and Nobel Prize, all sorts of stuff waiting for you on that one. But to your point here about the project being done, and I, I want to go to something you talked about really much earlier, Michael, that's basically about when you said about autopilots and planes. We've had autopilots for a long time, which is like, yeah, of course, because if you think about it, if you're piloting like a commercial plane or any plane, you don't want to be literally sitting at the controls the whole flight, especially if it's like eight hours, whoever knows how long, you just you get fatigued, right? You're like, why can't you just do what we have in our cars, cruise control, which I, I always think about as like the car version of autopilot, just 
it does it's not smart. It just goes fly at this altitude at this speed for this amount of time, make sure stuff doesn't go crazy. It's a little more sophisticated than cruise control, I'm sure, in our car, but it does that. The problem is when you build that, you can have some level of confidence that there's some maintenance that's required, but it's not handling all sorts of these unknown un- unknowns. Whereas if I had an autonomous flying solution, which is not like autopilot, takes off land and I can literally just click the button. If I said I built that autopilot in 2017 and we haven't updated it since, a lot of people would be like, woo, that feels risky. Whereas with autopilot, you're like, we built this autopilot for our Boeing 737 MAX 8. We won't get into that one, right? What was the problem with autopilot in that plane? But there's a little, little more confidence in that because this comes to something we talk about, which is augmented intelligence versus artificial intelligence. And this is the idea that the most valuable things that we can be doing with these cognitive systems is really just helping the person either offload some cognitive task, which would otherwise take a lot of their time, but they're still fundamentally in control versus these solutions that try to shift control onto something else, which is actually much higher risk and much more complicated and involves all this stuff. I've got two places I want to go with this. So Mike, in the context of thinking of our last podcast, even in many before it, but where we really got into business problem value, but we look at it as this idea of the product flow as a different way of understanding your project. It was just a project management. It was a little geek speak project management drill we were doing, guys. When you reflect on your own acclaim model and things, Mike, what do you see in here that might be different? I saw the one of expanding scope due to touching a data flow that becomes expansive. But what are you seeing in here that might be different from the other project management we face in terms of implementing an AI project? So no hard conclusions, but definitely some things running around my brain that I want to ask further of Ron yeah, no and doubt. Kathleen here. So because like a lot of science fiction movies where we design these great robots and then suddenly the robots take over someday or all the things that can go horribly wrong. But at a real practical level, even something like an autonomous vehicle, which uh, I think can be demonstrably shown now that whether it's driver-assisted or the machine takes over, that it, it, it can drive or generate a more accident-free world, that artificial intelligence can avoid a lot of the mistakes we humans make, and even things like driving while under the influence of alcohol. Machines can't do that. Fatigue question, where pilots in airplanes can reduce the cognitive load on them, and thus the fatiguing effect. But back to the science fiction example, I'm wondering if a driver of a truck gets a virus, In fact, even if he gets some of his fellow drivers sick at the truck stop, that's bad. But if the AI software inside the vehicle gets a virus, that could infect all the vehicles that have that software. What's the project management problem there, Bill, Say it's a huge project management problem because if I'm not aware of that particular risk, oh man. The question is, is that risk profile fundamentally different or in fact much worse? That's kind of my question, I guess. It seems like it's worse, but please steer me in the right direction, guys. Well, we actually have a whole series on ethical and responsible AI because what you're talking about touches on some of those concerns, right? There's actually many levels to this. There's the idea of humans trusting machines, and there's, of course, humans trusting humans, which is actually a big, we see as the much more immediate issue, which is people just doing bad things with autonomous or automated machines. We're already seeing what's happening in Ukraine, right? We're now in a new area of warfare. Everything is drone-based. Of course, they're human-operated, but you're already starting to see, it's like, well, you know, we can do a little automated stuff here, GPS navigation, camera detection, do a little computer vision, what could go wrong? We've seen that movie. 
But there's a lot of issues that are not even specific to AI because we're so dependent on data in general for a lot of our systems. So many cybersecurity risks around data theft, data tainting, people using systems, you know, misusing systems and our trust of those systems. Someone could basically be hacking into GPS systems and making things navigate the wrong way. People do that. GPS spoofing is a real thing. And there's many, many other threats. The reason why I don't worry too much about, you know, it's kind of this this weird, it's hard to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time, which is this idea that machines will take over. And at the same time, that Amazon can't figure out how to uh, monetize Alexa. Because I'm thinking, if machines were that smart, we'd be using Alexa all the time because it would be so awesome, but we're not using it because it's not that useful. But if it's not that useful, then how can these machines take over? Because then they're not that useful. And the answer is, yeah, they're not. That's what the machines want you to believe. They got me fooled. So you go down the right path of thinking, which has to do that. We actually have these like, mul there's multiple levels of this or layers of this ethical and responsible AI, which has to do with transparency into systems human accountability for machines. There's so many things that have already honestly gone wrong. I mean, the thing that we point to the most egregious of this is if you post something onto Google or YouTube or Facebook and they use one of their algorithms and their algorithms, which aren't even that sophisticated, you know, their content moderation things, and they just decide that your account is locked for whatever yeah. reason then your account will get terminated. This is today. And you have zero recourse. There's like there's no one to email because what they've done is they've made the decision that they will fully trust the algorithm. Yeah, the human's out of the loop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, and that to me is the most concerning because that could be applied to payment systems. One day you might find bank account, bam, completely delegated to the algorithm with no recourse. It could be anything. So this is to us the, the bigger danger uh, to me. It's not the machines taking over. It's that people may be trusting algorithms too much in decision making and then taking the human out of the loop for economic reasons. I love this because to me, what you just described is DMV on steroids, right? It's, it's how we go and engage with bureaucracy, which just got me to think, just make a leap. The algorithm we have spent 200 years building is called bureaucracy. There's this algorithm that we trust, I, and I know all my clients are federal government. So it starts with Congress and the president, and then somewhere out in the field, a rabbit gets counted somewhere in a forest, right? And so something happens in there, and, and we show up and get our social security checks, we go and get our DMV, we get our passports, all these services that we get, our, you know, our healthcare and all these things. That was the algorithm. And we know how frustrated we are when someone says to you at the window, next, you filled out the wrong form, go back and stand in that line. No, I don't know why your account's been blocked, right? I mean, it's just this endless loop with humans. We the can't do that. That's against our policy. Right. right. Well, it's the policy and the structure of the organization. It's been the algorithm that we've spent basically Victorian area for and the bureaucratic world forward trying to deal with. So now we may be putting it into the to the machine loop and it's going to be the same fears and frustrations all over again. So anyway, let me go to my next question that I had on that. So we just find that, that risk might be fundamentally different in a project like this. In your experience, guys, what is the smallest application that you have seen where someone has successfully rolled it out? I'll talk about some of the small ones. So if you need any time that you're going to keep the human in the loop too, it can be a little bit smaller. It doesn't need to be as accurate, right? We talked about autonomous, where the goal of that is to remove the human from the loop. That needs to be pretty accurate. I mean, you think about a car, right? If you're going to fully remove me from the loop, it's scary. You better be darn near accurate. 
we've seen recommendation systems. So that can be small and you're just recommending different products. You can implement that fairly quickly. We've also seen some image recognition where it's just identifying small things in an image. Also, a lot of automation style, which automation, we always say, is not intelligence, but we've seen a lot of people do automation and that can be really fast, especially, you know, have that quick ROI return on investment. And then another thing that we've talked about is when we we always say think big, but start small. So if you are building a chatbot, for example, you're going to use natural language processing. Think about the question that gets asked the most and Mm -hmm. how you can relieve maybe call center volume or just, you know, volume on your site and address that specific question. So the U.S. Postal Service put together a chatbot and they said the biggest question that they get asked is tracking a package. So that's what the bot answered. Not any of the other questions, just that. So start small, then you can really see a return. That was really start sensitive. What is it that most people are asking you about? I like that. What is the question you get asked the most? It's defining the problem that way. Cool. Thank you. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ron. No, no, that, that's perfect to continue. I mean, one of the interesting things we've seen, even with automation, very basic automation, there's a term called robotic process automation, which your listeners may or may not know about. Unfortunately, that term is, the, they use the term robotic, which is unfortunate, but it's really basically automating a lot of the human activities like cutting and pasting and scraping and going into emails. It's, it's like you can kick off like a little software bot that will do these activities, usually on behalf of call center agents so that when they're on the phone with you, they don't have to open up multiple systems or automated systems that may take inbound emails and automatically do things. And it does require like a little bit of natural language processing, which is an aspect of artificial intelligence, one of the we'll call seven patterns of AI, the conversational pattern. And this is a very basic thing, but what we say is like you have to separate for a lot of people that are in the customer support roles or those roles, you have to separate what we call their work from their job because their job is customer support, but they're spending like two or three hours a day putting things into systems, taking things out of systems. I think we all know the attitude of salespeople. They're like, they want to sell. They don't want to do data entry into CRM systems. But they're like, and as you know, the other mantra is you can't manage what you don't measure. So, you know, you have a bunch of salespeople who are basically spending half of their time not doing sales, doing data entry and doing reporting and doing this stuff to make the other people know that they're selling, which is crazy. So people have been starting to apply like, oh, this is actually not a bad application where the system might listen on the phone call, automatically do logging, automatically do the entries. It knows your calendar. So it automatically puts the entries into the CRM systems. It knows how long you spent on the call. You can even do a little bit of call analytics to, to know if the person was there, if there's like a next step. You know, it doesn't even have to be crazy or like taking inbound email and doing things, basic things like Accounts payable, which is a total disaster in most large organizations, they have to spend their time separating invoices from contracts from other random email in a PDF system so they can enter it into their ERP system. We're like, why are our accounts payable people spending their time literally duplicating stuff from a PDF or an invoice into an ERP system? And so like, this is a great activity for an automated software bot. These companies have been growing like crazy lately. They'll just listen to that inbox and you just create this little flow. You can even record yourself doing it with like a screen recorder and it'll automatically take the stuff out of the PDF and put it in there. And then you're only handling the exceptions when stuff doesn't work. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about what the next topic here for us would be. But having said that, let me go back to what you just said, where you talked about the smallest examples, asking the right question, solving the business problem. And then you just walked us over to RPA. What I wanted to know, 
is what do we actually mean by the application of artificial intelligence? Like, what is it doing that we weren't doing anyway, particularly when you talked about like workflow? So when we talk about artificial intelligence, we break it down into the seven patterns of AI, because what happens is when you say AI and I say AI, I can be talking about autonomous vehicles. You can be talking about AI named chatbots. Ron can be talking about a predictive maintenance system. They're all under that umbrella of AI, but they're I'm fascinated. What are the seven? Perfect. So because they're all different, right? And so it means that you're going to have different data that's required, maybe different members on your team, maybe also the project will, you know, look a little bit different. Different algorithms will be selected. So you need to understand what it is that you're trying to solve. And so in no particular order, the first one is hyper-personalization. So this is treating each individual as an individual. No longer am I bucketing you into groups and categories. You think about this a lot with like advertising. This is an advertiser's dream, right? But you can also have hyper-personalized healthcare, hyper-personalized finance, right? Uh Everybody looks a little different. Maybe Ron and I have the exact same credit score, but we spend our money very differently and we invest our money differently and we are, you know, have different goals. Maybe Ron has 10 kids. He doesn't. We both have two. But if he had like 10 kids and I had two, maybe his goals of college are going to look a lot different than my goals of college if we don't have the same number of kids. Then we have conversational systems. So this is Machines talking to humans and humans talking to machines and then humans to humans. So machine translation in here falls natural language processing and all that, you know, AI enabled chatbots. Then we have the autonomous system. So the goal here is to remove the human from the loop. That's obviously incredibly difficult and the hardest pattern of AI. We have predictive analytics. So this is helping humans make better predictions. We're keeping the human in the loop here. We have patterns and anomalies. So this is where we are looking at data and, you know, finding patterns in that data, looking for outliers. Think about fraud detection here. That's a really great use case for that. And then we also have goal-driven systems. So this really is around reinforcement learning and trying to find the most optimal path through to the end goal. And so we've seen this with warehouses, for example, where we've removed humans and now we can navigate through warehouses with bots a lot easier. And then the last pattern, again, in no particular ranking, is the recognition pattern. So this is making sense of all of that unstructured data that we had talked about as emails and audio files and images, anything that's, you know, most of the data that we're creating today, anything that's not kind of nice uh, has scheme. Is this what you uh, teach when people come to you and you're, you're looking at, I guess, some sort of certification is to think and learn about how they can see these applications in, in their own business problems? Is that the focus of this kind of education? Yeah, I mean, just to a very large extent. It's also on breaking down some of these harder problems, also understanding, because sometimes people are very tempted to skip certain aspects of the process. Intel actually introduced this idea called the AI Go No-Go. We like to think of it as a series of nine traffic lights on a, in a one-road town, and you really can't start your AI project unless all those traffic lights are green and yellow doesn't count, or amber for our UK listeners here. But that's basically this idea that you know you have to have the three traffic lights of business. Is the business willing to invest? You know, uh, is there a well-defined need? You know, the, those kind of things. You know, is the business willing to change? And then the next one is the technological barriers, which have a lot to do with, do you have the data? Do you have the capabilities to do it? That sort of stuff. Then the third one is, can you even use the model where you want to use the model and aspects of those things? 
And the funny thing is that we find that a lot of times the projects that tend to go off the rails are the ones where either there's clearly red lights, but they're kind of going to go ahead anyways. Or where there's like un- there's uncertainty, where you're like, I'm not sure if we have the data. We're like, well, maybe the pre-project, if you want to think of this, like the first project before your project should be the project to figure out if you have that data, what that looks like. And you might be like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize you know, all these problems. And they're like, okay, now you're aware of the risks inherent in, in the next project. The- Left of charter. Yeah, Dollar. exactly. So we do spend a lot of time on that. We actually do spend a lot of time on concepts and fundamentals, basic education, you know, AI, machine learning, which is perfectly reasonable to expect. And honestly, we're spending a lot more time even on basic data education. A lot of things you were talking about that we've been talking about for decades, people still need to learn about data integration, data cleansing, data preparation, data transformation. I don't think that's ever going to go away, which might be a good thing. All of what you guys have shared with us today, it hit me that most of those seven, if not all of the seven types of AI or categories can drive a another big risk to any AI project, which is the risk of what happens when we scale it. So if you think 10 or 15 years ago, Toyota had a big problem where something like 0.01% of its cars had a major brake failure, but they sell millions and millions of cars. And so there's were hundreds and hundreds of people, and I'm, I don't have the math perfect there, so don't quote me, but many, many cars were having brake failures. And unfortunately, some even ended in fatal accidents. And so if, if I was only selling 100 cars and I had a 0.1% percent failure, I might not have a single failure in those hundred. And at most I'll have one maybe, and maybe that's manageable. But it's, it strikes me that as we scale AI, which is of course one of its big advantages, right? The, the scaling potential, the potential of you know incurring that risk that when we were a startup and a scale up ourselves was no big deal. But now that we're dealing in the millions or billions or trillions of uh, at scale size, one small mistake doesn't even have to be a virus or anything malicious. Just one, one little bug could really wreak havoc. So I'd love to get your guys' take on that. That's absolutely true. And sometimes it's, it's easy to see kind of what the potential issues could be at scale, especially some of these like harder problems and trying to make some of these harder things work. But sometimes you can't, it's like really difficult to see that. And so one of the things that we sort of built out about two years ago was this idea of you need like some sort of ethical AI framework or a trustworthy AI, which is more about the human side than it is about the machine side. And we didn't create this entirely out of scratch. We looked at, there were all these existing ethical AI frameworks that different organizations were creating. None of them were particularly comprehensive. Some really focused on data privacy, some focused on keeping the human in the loop, some focused on malicious actors. and, And we said, well, let's just combine them all together rationalize them in some sort of way, and then create this sort of structure. And what an organization needs to do is to say, assume that your AI, something will go wrong. Assume that your AI systems will go wrong or someone's going to come in and hack your system. Or So the question is, what are the processes and procedures you'll put into place to be aware of it, hopefully beforehand, to, and then manage that sort of risk process so that we figured that out with cars with the whole recall process, right? That recall process, and and even in the, even in medicine, we figured that the whole pandemic, when people report some sort of illness that can possibly be contagious, there's a system by which we can detect that. Because if we didn't, we'd be surprised one day we're like, wow, a whole lot of people are dying. It's like, yeah, there's a pandemic, you know, Um, not having any awareness of it is part of the problem. And of course, you know, issues and methods for dealing with containment, some of which might be highly controversial. But in certain the case of AI systems, that's, I think, the biggest thing that organizations are really, uh, that are putting together technology are missing 
either it's, you know, sometimes it's just ho- they're, they're not sure, they're experimenting, so they don't really know what can go wrong. When we do the ethical and responsible AI framework, we do the same thing we do in our failure series, which is that we do the ripped from the headlines. We're like, here's what happened. You know, Amazon rolled out their AI system for hiring. And sure enough, it was denying all these women, right? What could go wrong, right? And of course, they had to shut that thing off. And if you think about it, I understand, it's like we understand the motivations. They're not trying to play, you know, research games here. Amazon, for their warehouses, they hire literally thousands and thousands of people every month, and they have to evaluate tens of thousands of resumes, right? They could do the brainless thing and basically say, okay, everybody's in if it meets his qualifications, or they can do the really hard thing, which is everybody gets an interview. But neither of those things are good. So they thought, well, hey, let's use AI. AI could take a look at the resumes. AI can do these things and it'll make the decisions. Of course, not realizing that when they, this is the issue with the algorithmic decision-making. There's this tendency to say, we got an algorithm for that. So now let's take all the people out and let make, let's put the algorithm in control. The person who designed the algorithm may have biases that just got designed in. With, right? Exactly. Because they were so, looking at past hires and they were using past hires to predict future hires, not realizing that past hires had a bias problem. Right. So how would a PM attack this? Because like, I know Six Sigma was invented to basically keep things within some sort of t- statistical process control at very low error rates, like the Toyota example I gave. Is that an approach PMs should use? Is it just being better risk managers, knowing that we have bigger risks at scale? Is it using AI to solve that scale problem itself? I mean, for us, obviously, we're advocates of the CPM AI methodology. So we always say, make sure that you're following some step-by-step process, some methodology when you're running your projects. We're advocates of CPM AI. It's built for AI projects that project managers can follow. Also, make sure that you have fundamental education on AI. You know, what it is, what it isn't good for. Not a lot of people spend the time necessarily to learn that. And that's why we go over the seven patterns of AI as much as we do. And that's why we go over common reasons that AI projects fail so that folks are understanding that because it's different than running a software development project. And so if you go into it with that mindset, you're going to learn pretty quickly that you're not going to be able to successfully run your project. So is there something in your methodology that deals with this scale issue like Six Sigma does, like very small defect rates, but at very large volumes? Yes. So there's the fifth. So the six phases. And by the way, CPMI borrows from an existing methodology or process that's been around called CRISPDM, which is the cross-industry standard process for data mining that's been around since the late 90s, early 2000s for data mining projects. And they realized that the fifth step or the fifth phase is called model evaluation. And model evaluation is supposed to be the time when you check, like before you push it out, it's like you check. Does the model do what it's supposed to do? Does it work within the constraints? Are the performances that acceptable or not acceptable? What you're supposed to be doing at that point is also being like, well, let's let's sort of introduce some element of scale and see how this model responds in this element of scale. And so you're supposed to be doing that, and then you're supposed to be monitoring and doing it. So the way that you do the specific method can borrow from Six Sigma. You can do many different quality management styles and approaches, defect measurement, error rate measurement, some of which can be sort of more business-oriented for defects and things like that, some of which can be more technical, model-oriented, accuracy, precision, that sort of thing, some of which can be more sort of like technology-oriented, looking at how does this impact scale, computing resources. But you're supposed to do that. And as you know, sometimes people don't want to do it. It's great advice and any PMs listening and are are interested in getting more involved in AI projects or you're already involved in them and you need to up your game, so to speak. That's great advice, Ron and Kathleen. Thanks. 
And thank you. So I, I wanted to ask you guys now, as we close out then, uh, Kathleen and Ron, that uh, quick question for you. Tell us a little bit now about what you're selling that a PM, from a corporate perspective, that a PM can come and learn to find out more about this field from a PM perspective. Like they want to come and become a project manager in the space. It sounds like you would be giving them a grounding in AI as well as the understanding of its approaches and needs, as well as the step-by-step process of actually executing it. It's almost like a project management flow for it. Tell me what they can come and find out from uh, Time Linka. Sure. So we have our free intro to CPMAI. So CPMAI is the Cognitive Project Management for AI. So CPMAI, we're calling it a methodology, but it's really a step-by-step process of how to run your AI projects. So it starts with business understanding and data understanding, as we talked about, uh, goes all the way to model operationalization phase six. So, and it's iterative, so you can go back. And that's what, you know, we really push for because we've seen way too many AI projects kind of move forward with no plan at all. And then some people are like, well, are you following the methodology? And they say, well, yes, we're following the scientific methodology. And I'm like, I don't think you're really running your AI projects with the scientific methodology, but they just are saying that. I know. Because if you take a step back, I'm like, you're not doing that. So that's actually kind of scary when we hear that. So we're like, just follow it. Just learn it. Right. It's another tool in your toolkit. Because this isn't meant to replace anything that you've done. You know, it's not an either or. It's a yes and. So it's just take this and learn. And what we've also found is that a lot of people learn a methodology and then kind of make it their own, which is good and bad. You know, they adopt it for their organization. They adopt it for their industry. So we say, just just learn it. You know, you have nothing to lose. Because you have a lot to lose if you run these projects incorrectly. You have a lot of time that you're losing. You have a lot of resources. So that can be, you know, money resources, people resources to just learn it. So we have our free intro to CPMAI, the Cognitive Project Management for AI. You can go to AIToday.live slash CPMAI, register for free. It's about an hour or two. And it just goes over that high-level overview. If folks are interested in learning more, which is our very thorough, in-depth course that's about 27 hours plus exercises and an exam, then they can go to cognolitica.com slash CPMAI. So C-O-G-N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A dot com slash CPMAI. And that really goes into, you know, in a lot greater detail what you need to do each phase. We walk through three different projects with you as well so that you're understanding, okay, how do I apply it here? How do I apply it here? And we also encourage whoever is taking it to walk through a real life project as well as they're going along with the training so that they can say, okay, this is how I would apply it to my organization. This is how I would apply it to my specific project. And then you know, you figure out what your challenges and roadblocks are and how to overcome them. So we found that folks that go through this, they have a much better understanding because also this really is how to run an AI project, not how AI will help project managers, where it's two different things, where that's more like what tools and how is AI going to help me do my job better? That's going to be the subject of our next podcast episode that the four of us have together. That's actually the conversation I want to have. But I'm still intrigued. So you have the free course. We can learn some stuff about, it sounds like the AI perspective generally, and then very specifically on how to execute one that you guys have boiled out some lessons. You talked about how you wrestled an ethical framework. I assume that's part of this training as well, for example, that you highlighted. What else do you offer for project managers looking to improve in this space and help their businesses and mission? Yeah, so as mentioned, we have our, we actually have a training and certification, which is not free, but for folks who want to get specifically trained in this methodology. 
And also one of the things that we, and we have a few other things that we have where we work with organizations to help with their methodology and building it out. We have a trustworthy AI framework and we're working on some other things. One of the things I'd like to actually learn from the audience, because we haven't really sold most of our customers have been primarily folks who are doing AI and doing data projects, but we are spending more time directly with PMs and project managers. Actually, a lot of the most, one of the things that really got us in, intrigued at this space is that a lot of our most recent CPMAI certified individuals were PMPs and were folks with like scaled agile and all these other certifications were like, okay, they're coming from this PM world. And the thing about the PMs is that they may not necessarily be aware of or even be involved with AI directly. So the call out for your listeners is that we're thinking about bringing in just a specific AI for project managers course. That's not about the methodology. It's more of everything that you need to know about AI, all the things that you need to to do. And then, of course, the ways that AI might impact the job of project management, the career of project management. So uh, we encourage folks to reach out to us if they're interested in participating and doing one of those classes with us. Well, thank you both, Kathleen and Ron. I appreciate you giving us the lowdown today and letting us throw some questions at you from a project management perspective, project management point of view, indeed. So uh, I do appreciate that. And um, I'm hopeful that people will be able to reach out and contact you later. And uh, you're located in Maryland and your course is offered, I would imagine, very virtually. That's right. Self-paced, online. And if you want to reach out to us, you can send us an email, info, I-N-F-O, at Cognolytica, C-O-G, N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A dot com. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, guys. And uh, we will talk again later. Great. We're looking forward to it. Thank you for having us. Well, we hope that you enjoyed listening to that podcast. I know that we found it very insightful when we were on the show, so I hope that you did as well. And if you're interested in checking out their podcast, we'll link to it in the show notes so that you can go right to that link. And we'll also link to the podcast interview where uh, both Ron and myself were on their podcast, so you can check it out on their podcast as well. So with that, we thank you so much for listening. And uh, as I mentioned, we always link in the show notes. So we'll link to both of this podcast, the PM point of view. their series and our specific one as well. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We always love when our listeners reach out to us. You have many insightful things to share, including, you know, feedback on interviews that we've done and also topics that you'd like us to cover. So if you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to AI Today and you can get notified of all of our upcoming episodes. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.